Last week we covered Hebrews chapter 7 verses 1 and 2. That's as much as we could do last week. We explored that mysterious man Melchizedek and we saw how Jesus was everything Melchizedek uh, was supposed to be and then Jesus was much more. The question of Melchizedek illuminated really an amazing answer, which we covered last week, which is that Jesus is the divine guarantee that whatever God has started, God will finish. That was part one. That was last week. That was Hebrews 7 verses 1 to 2. But but there are a few other things that we uh, that are happening in Hebrews chapter 7 that we did not have time to cover Last week, and I want us to get right back into it as we begin, because we're going to cover this entire chapter this morning, so strap your seatbelt on. Here we go. Last week, we covered verses 1 to 2, and uh, but not verse 3, so let's pick up with verse 3 this morning. I think we're going to have it on the screen. The bold part is what we'll begin with, but I'll just begin reading um, in the beginning of the chapter, which says, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And then Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. We covered all that last week. And then verse 3, this Melchizedek was without father or mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, But resembling the Son of God, Melchizedek continues as a priest, and let's read that last word together, forever. That word forever is really, really important. The preacher is trying to convince us that Melchizedek, he he represents like a, a future eternal priesthood, and that priesthood is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is a big deal, which is also why it shows up in Hebrews 7, verses 23 and 24, as well as Hebrews 7, 28. The repetition really is not an accident. Look what it says, Hebrews 7, 23 to 24. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues, let's read that word, forever. Hebrews 7, 28, same chapter. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. That doesn't make me feel very good. Uh, the, The pastors were weak. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect. Let's read that forever. Very good. This is one more way of describing why Pastor Jesus is better than any other pastor in all of human history. Because no other pastor um, ever before could have ever gone on forever. Human pastors have a very limited amount of time. It just talked of us as weak. Eventually, we lose our sharpness as pastors. Eventually, we get too old. Eventually, we get replaced. In fact, pastoring was set up this way from the very beginning of the Old Testament. The initial plans for pastoring, I was looking it up this week, they show up in the Old Testament, and the rule was that you could not start pastoring until you were 25 years old. You had to wait until you were 25. That was the first rule in Numbers chapter 8, set up, and later on, King David thought that was a little bit too old, so he changed it to 20, but it's all pretty much the same thing. You could not begin as a priest until you were about 20 years old. There was a lot of heavy lifting a priest would have to do, both spiritually as well as 
emotionally and physically, you were, you were actually um, carrying a lot of livestock and stuff like that. So they thought it would be wise to wait till at least 20 before a young man takes on the role of God's priest. And I think I came here when I was 26 or 27. So by Old Testament standards, I was a late bloomer. But they were also intentional about how long a priest could go for. For them, the oldest you could be before they pushed you out was 50 years old. That age limit never changed throughout all of the Old Testament. Throughout the entire Old Testament, God's, God's people assumed their priests would have about 20 to 25 years of effective ministry, and then it would be time for another priest to take on the reins. It was God's system for making sure the priests were able to do their job most effectively and represent the people most faithfully. God has always cared about church leadership. The whole system was intentionally set up so God's people would not be reliant on any one person for very long. They were careful if someone was too young. They were a little bit skeptical of that. And once someone started to get the gray hairs, they began to look for the next guy. That was the expectation for thousands of years. So it's unique. In Hebrews chapter 7, this is what they all would have known. They're always getting a new priest in, always someone new. That's, that's how it was meant, meant to be. So in Hebrews 7, they're hearing that the new better priest will be able to go on forever. No one in the history of mankind ever had a priest who could go on forever. That was like against the rules. That was different than what they knew about. Furthermore, according to Hebrews 7.3, this new priest, he said he'll be able to hold his place forever because he doesn't have a genealogy. Now, it was absolutely bonkers in those days to not have your genealogy. Your genealogy is your birth record, so to speak. Your, your genealogy is your passport. If you've ever had to travel to another country or maybe you've, you've come here and you've had to receive a passport, very important piece of paper. Actually, the preacher in Hebrews is using a word that is never used elsewhere in the Greek language as far as we know up until this time in history. He describes the new priest as genealogetos in the Greek, which is literally the A is without, and that last part means genealogy. That was a brand new word for a brand new sort of priest. The, the preacher is, is ma basically making something up as he goes because no one had ever heard of this before. Literally, the new priest would be unattached to his genealogy, unattached to the papers. In those, in those days, your genealogy, it locates who you are, it locates your person in, a, in like a, a family and, and where you come from, from a place. It shows your ancestry. Your genealogy established your personal identity, your, your social and legal and ritual status. It would actually show your position of responsibility. It would show you what, what land you can actually own, what, where you can live, and your eligi eligibility to exercise public leadership. In those days, genealogy was everything to them. In fact, under Jewish law, a man could not under any circumstance become a priest unless he could prove with his papers that his lineage goes back to Aaron, who was, who was that first priest. Priesthood selection, it was not based on your character, it wasn't based on your ability, it wasn't based on your looks, it wasn't based on your training, what degrees you have. No, no, no none of that. It was really all about pedigree. Who was your daddy? So without the right 
dad, you had to sit outside the leadership circle in the Old Testament. Priesthood was always a thing that stayed in the family. In this system, outsiders aren't simply looked over. They are really just unwelcome. You could be with God's people, but you wouldn't be allowed to lead God's people unless you had the right papers. You couldn't be a part of the leadership team until your lineage allowed it. How it worked was if you have no familial connections, then you have no real authority in that place. You were really required to sit on the sidelines. This is how it was. And no one would budge on this. In fact, after the exile, when the Jews were returning to Jerusalem and they were trying to rebuild and they were having to re-put together the the priest uh, situation and, and put priests back into place, there were certain priestly families, they were applying to be priests. They were saying, I'd like to be a priest. I, I come from Aaron. I've got the right lineage. But they were denied because they lost their papers in all of the shuffle. You see that in Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7. And they said, show me the papers. And they said, well, well I lost it. We, we got exiled. We, we, we didn't have time to grab that. And they said, then you cannot be a priest in this new time. You are nothing if you had your genealogy. Family lineage was the way that you qualify for priesthood. If you didn't have the right daddy, you would not be taken seriously. So the group of people who were eligible was very, very small. But here the author is saying this new priest, this forever priest, will not qualify for the job based on descent. He will qualify based on something better. This new pastor's legitimacy is going to be based on his qualifications alone. This is a turning point in the history of pastoral ministry. At this point, the priesthood becomes much more effective. It's, not, it's no longer just a family game. It's no longer just stuck to that. Leadership becomes bigger than biology in God's new kingdom. That's Hebrews 7 verse 3. Now the position is going to be open to the person who is truly most qualified The new priest wouldn't have to derive his authority from the previous person. The new priest would hold an authority all on his own. This new amazing priest is really the only new connection the new priest is going to need is himself. He's going to come in with some sort of amazing authority that no one had ever seen. You're going to be able to trust him so much. You don't have to have all of these rules anymore. He's just going to come in. And all all you're going to need is, is him. He won't even need his papers. And the Jews would have been like, oh my goodness, this is, this is unheard of. This is very different, but bring it on, they would think. All of these descriptions are helping the congregation to realize Jesus is better than all the other priests that, than you've ever had. And he's different than all the other priests you've ever had. And that's a really good thing. Since Jesus will be different, he, he will be able to serve for you forever. So much of Hebrews has been a focus on how amazing Jesus is. And Hebrews 7 is really much more of the same. It's like Jesus, 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 and then much more Jesus. And the cherry on top of this chapter is Hebrews 7, 25 and 26. Here's what it says. Therefore, he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because Jesus always, there's another word for forever, he always lives to intercede for them. This is Jesus. This is your new priest. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is devout. 
one who is blameless, one who is pure, one who is set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Take that in for a second, Holden Chapel. If Jesus can save us completely, then nothing can stop Jesus. Nothing you do can disqualify you from the salvation that Jesus would offer you. Nothing the people around you, nothing that someone can do to you could ever disqualify, could never get in the way, it could never stop that salvation that God wants to give you. Because Jesus will never get sick. He will never die. He never goes on vacation. He never falls down. He never falls asleep on the job. He never tires of helping us. Jesus never compromises his position. He never takes advantage of his power. How many, how many of us have seen humans take advantage of their power? Jesus never does that. Jesus is never unavailable. He is never replaced. He is never forgotten. He, he never forgets. He is never passive. Jesus is never absent. He is never clueless. Jesus is never scared. Jesus is never stuck. Jesus dedicates his forever eternity, his always eternity, listen to this, to giving us his full support through his intercession for us. Elaine, that means Jesus is praying for you all the time. Colin, Jesus is praying for you all the time. Steve, he's praying for you all the time. This is what Jesus lives for. This is what gets him going. I guess he doesn't get up in the morning because he never sleeps, but this is what he does. This is my life. Jesus forever. I'm going to pray for my people. Jesus is everything we need because he is everything we are not. I have not been able to pray that much for you. Well, we are oftentimes half-hearted about our faith. We easily doubt. We easily worry. We easily lose sight of what we should be looking at. Jesus is 100% devoted to us all the time. To be devout is to be focused. It's to be attentive. It's to be unswerving. It's not distracted. That's what Jesus is. It's, he's, he's truly able to meet our need. He is devout, fully capable, save us completely. We're told Jesus is also, that next word is blameless. While we are filled with guilt and corruption and selfishness, I know I am, but Jesus is a man of perfect integrity. He's pure. Jesus is undefiled. He's never separated from God's love. He has no emotional wounds. Jesus has no psychological scars to hinder his ministry. Everything he's doing is perfect. It's at the right time in just the right way. He knows exactly what's going on in your heart. So Jesus is coming at you in that perfect, blameless, devout way. Jesus is also, it says, set apart from sinners. This doesn't mean Jesus avoids us. Thank goodness for that. But it means Jesus never sides with those who are evil. Jesus' ways are not our ways. Jesus never sins, and Jesus never falls into sin. He never gets caught up in the wrong crowd. Any of you ever done that? You get caught up in the wrong crowd, and you're just kind of swept into something that isn't helpful. That never happened to Jesus. Sin never clouds Jesus' vision because there is no sin within Jesus. 
blows my mind. No external sin has ever penetrated into Jesus. He's in a league of his own. And finally, this passage tells us Jesus is exalted above the heavens, which means there's no restriction to Jesus' power. Jesus is transcendent. He is above all things while we are of dust and to dust we will return. Jesus' spirit. Jesus lives on forever. We normal humans, we get stuck in our earthly, fleshly habits. But Jesus is never constrained by bad decisions. His exaltation and his power is as high as it could possibly be. This is what the preacher is trying to help them to understand. As you can see, much of this chapter is like the majority of this book. It's geared towards helping you to see the majesty of the Messiah. He's like, man, Jesus is amazing. He's going to be really different than how the Old Testament people did it, even different than your leaders. But he's everything you'd ever want, everything your leaders never were. Jesus is all of that. And so it's just Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus all over, all over. I, and and after, really after, after seven chapters, hopefully you're starting to feel it. Hopefully you're starting to embrace it. Hopefully you're starting to say, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who I need to trust. All the humans, they're not going to be able to do it for me. I won't put my faith in a celebrity. I won't put my faith there, but I'll put my faith in Jesus. And he's trying to convince you. We've been months and months and months in this. I don't know how many weeks we have been in this so far. How, how long, Tom? 10, 15, 20, something like that. Hopefully it's been enough and you're starting to believe it. Big point of the chapter is this. But I'd be remiss if I left the other thing out in this chapter. The other thing that the preacher is doing in Hebrews chapter 7, and it is a shaking experience. When I looked at it this week and I realized... Look at that challenging question in Hebrews 7, verse 11 to 12. It says this, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. If everything was all set, then why would you have needed another person like Melchizedek? Why, why would Melchizedek have shown up and surprised all of you if everything was fine the way that it was? And when he, when he drops the question, you'd have been able to hear a pin drop in the sanctuary. This would have shaken the Jews to the core. The preacher is saying it's not enough for you to realize and receive and relish the truth about who Jesus is, the truth that you can put your trust in Jesus, the truth that Jesus is better. That's, that is not the whole message of Hebrews. That's part of it. That's simply the first step that affects all the other steps that come afterwards. That's why he's taken seven chapters on it. But now the preacher is going much farther. He is saying if Jesus is truly better, then everything else that is not of Jesus must be thrown off. For you to embrace Jesus as your new priest is to also admit that your former system of religion and tradition as wonderful as it was back then and for those days it was fine. God had set it up. It's now defunct in the light of God's new covenant. Now he's got the congregation's attention. Them as fighting words right there. The routine that you've been used to for thousands of years, 
Now I want you to throw it out. Their natural earthly response would be, what? That's our past, pastor. That's our legacy, pastor. That's our heritage, pastor. That's our best memories, pastor. That's our comfort. That's our ritual. That's all we know. Pastor, what are you saying? The preacher is saying it's time to throw out the old stuff and move on to something new. Now put yourself in their shoes for just a second. This would have felt borderline disrespectful as they heard this message. This would have felt borderline out of control. This would have felt borderline hasty. I mean, we would feel that way at Holden Chapel, and we've only existed for 50 years. Imagine if someone comes in to Holden Chapel, and they say, hey, everything that you've done for the first 50 years, awesome stories, awesome stuff, time to throw all of it out. Take the history, take it out, and we'd say, good, hold on a second. And we've only existed for 50 years. The Jews have existed for thousands and thousands of years. And so he's telling this to them, and they've come with all of their stuff, all of who they've been, all of the stuff that they've loved, the stuff that they felt close to. Here begins the exploration of the necessity of newness. Here we go in Hebrews. Here's the second part. It's not so much that the Old Testament law was bad. It's just that the Old Testament system couldn't last forever. The Old Testament law showed them their sin. It showed them their need for a savior. But as Tanya said, they had to keep coming back. Because if you're like me, then you just keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Then you find new mistakes. You never even thought you could make that. And all of a sudden you're falling into it. Anyone else? This is who we are. It could show them their need for a savior. It could not provide for a savior. Their laws only showed them they were lost. So the law, the ritual, the religion, it was a means but not an end. What the law demanded, it, the law could not deliver. We all know this. Laws can curb behavior, right? Consequences. It can curb the behavior. But it cannot cleanse the heart. It cannot produce that love that Pastor Tom was talking about this morning. Laws never do that. Which is why we are told in Hebrews 7.15, that Jesus is not a priest because he fulfilled the legal requirement. Jesus was not a priest because he had the papers. Rather, Jesus is a priest by the power of an indestructible life. It says that this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, your new pastor, that, that new priest, that new Jesus is going to have a power unlike you've ever seen. And it's a power that we all need because what the law is doing, it can't do enough for us. You see that? The preacher is saying, what, where you once looked to the law for safety, now you've got to open yourself up to a brand new power that you cannot control, you cannot predict, you cannot manipulate, you cannot tame. Now, now we are on to moving on to a new thing. So he's saying, buckle up. Here we go. Now that we know Jesus is everything, now let's do something new. And the conservatives in the room would have crossed their arms like I would have, and we would have furrowed our, our brows. They would have begun squirming uncomfortably in their seats because to live for Jesus is also to die to self. 
If you want to receive God's power in the future, you have to let go of the past. That, my friends, is never easy. The older you get, the more difficult that job will be to let go of the past. For some of us, that sounds utterly impossible. For some of us, that might sound even wrong, even morally wrong. At the least, it sounds a little bit disrespectful, doesn't it? Because we're holding on to some of those things in our lives, in our families, in our workplaces. The things that we do, we hold on to that. I hold on to that stuff, and I do not ever want to let it go. So the preacher is saying, because of Jesus, you can't go on living the same way you always have. Your master is not of this world. Your king is doing something new. And new wine doesn't fit into old wineskins. You don't just need a new Messiah. You also need a new system for life. New wine cannot fit into old wineskins. Those are Jesus' words. Mark chapter 2, 21 to 22. He was given this message all the way in the beginning of his ministry. I looked at that in Mark 2, the religious leaders were complaining to Jesus because he doesn't fast as much as they did. And they had their cute, their passive, their peaceful religious rituals. And it was all very comfortable. It was all very predictable. They looked to those things for their justification. Here's what we've done for thousands of years. And then they noticed Jesus isn't doing that. They didn't, Jesus was not following suit. He was being different. So they said, what's going on, Jesus? Why aren't you as religious as we are, Jesus? Why aren't you as obsessed with daddy's rules as we are, Jesus? How come you don't have your papers? How come you're not following in the tradition of what has gone before? What's going on, Jesus? Jesus is like, I'm doing a new thing. I'm setting up an entirely new structure here. And in order for you to capitalize on my power, you got to get rid of the old system. And the religious people were like, how dare you? How dare you say that to us? Jesus critiqued their beloved system. He said, your old ways couldn't contain me if they tried. Their allegiance to their past was making it difficult for them to enter into God's future. And to embrace God's future. And guess what they did to Jesus? I don't remember what they did to Jesus. They killed Jesus because of it. That's how controversial this message was. Don't you dare say anything about my past or the system. We'll rather take you down. And every generation of Jesus' followers must also ask themselves the same challenging questions Church, I've been doing this a lot in these last few months. What is more important to us, preserving the past or pressing on towards the future? Is it more important that we maintain or should we move forward? Should we keep sitting or should we start doing something? What is more important, human traditions or Christ-centered transformation? Pick one or the, old, pick one or the other. The, Hebrew, the, the, the preacher in Hebrews is saying, you cannot have both. You can't have both. These challenging questions propel the rest of the book in Hebrews. The necessity of newness is the theme of Hebrews chapter 8, which we're about to get to. Pastor Tom will preach on it, where he, the preacher concludes by describing the Old Testament system as obsolete, he says. That means worthless, of no use, expired, 
don't need it anymore. Then chapters 9 and 10 is a checklist of all the things they looked for in the Old Testament system. Stuff like a clear conscience and forgiveness and purity and sanctification and power and, and, and all, of that, all of that confidence. You used to go to the law for that, chapters 9 and 10. Now it can all be found in Jesus. So stop looking back. Start looking at Jesus, he says. And that is why Hebrews chapter 11 is where it is in chapter 11 of the book. Because by the time we get there, it becomes clear that the life of the Christian is simply a life of faith. There is no other way to follow Jesus. You are no longer in control. Life is no longer comfortable. You can no longer coast. When Jesus comes in, newness is necessary. So put your faith in Jesus and start to move according to Jesus' beat of the drum. The book of Hebrews has now taken a major turn. It is maybe the transitional point in the book of Hebrews. After seven long chapters of mostly positive exhortation, the preacher is going to start making it clear that in order to follow this better Jesus, you've got to let go of the past. A simpler way to ask the challenging question would be this. What do you want? Do you want Christ or do you want comfort? Do you want the past or do you want the future? You want to worship Jesus or you want to devote yourself to a human priest? You cannot have your cake and eat it too. You've got to pick. You've got to stop sitting on the fence. You've got to stop making excuses. You've got to start harnessing the power of Jesus by his Holy Spirit. Now that Jesus has arrived, the time of Jeremiah 31 has come. Here's what Jeremiah 31 predicted. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Intentionally different than the one that was made in the past. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. They shall all know me from the greatest to the least. And I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. Church, that day is now here because we now have a forever priest. Not because of any of the earthly guys, but because of Jesus. That's today. Like literally today, 2021, that is the opportunity that we are in. That is the freedom we have in Christ. That is now our new reality. Oh, so we can just take a breath. <gasps> we don't got to hold to the old stuff anymore. Praise the Lord. As much as we liked it, as much as it was good for back then, now we can be all done with that. Woo! Turn another direction and start moving. Man, that's scary though. I know it's scary. You are now invited into a personal relationship. Jeff, this is true for you as well. Richard, this is true for you as well. Diane, this is true for you as well. You are now invited into a personal relationship with Jesus. This is real. This God cannot be boxed in. This is a God who loves to do new things. Newness is necessary in God's new kingdom absolutely necessary. So my question is, are you willing to live a life that is open and welcoming to God, moving you in a new direction? Or are you content to keep doing the same old, same old? I've had to ask myself that a lot. 
your answer to that question will show you who or what you are putting your trust in for real. And church, I pray that this is not just some fancy message. I pray I am living a life that is trying to seek this out as well. People are going to walk through my house today to buy my house. And I have many more questions and answers. But when Jesus does something in your heart, as difficult as it is, and as much as you want to push back from it, that's a really special thing. The God of the universe is speaking into your heart and he wants to do something new. Are we willing and open to to that newness that that God is trying to do in our lives? I wish it looked all the same for you because then I could just bring you all to the church that I'm going. That would be awesome. Maybe I'll start just praying for that. But unfortunately, it's not all the same for each of us, is it? Some of us are in college. Some of us are retired. Some of us never wanted to go to college, and we're we're not doing that. Some of us are working. Some of us are are caring for our loved ones. Some of us have no idea what life is, is, is about to do. Some of us have the whole thing planned out. But God is inviting you into a new relationship with him, saying, Hey, I know you. I know you, Chris. I know you. I want to do something new in your life. What's holding you back? Is there anything? What's comfortable? What are you clinging on to that you just refuse to let go? Preacher in Hebrews is saying, you can let go now because Jesus, Jesus is gonna, he's going to hold you fine. You don't need any of that old stuff. That's the question we, we got to wrestle with for the, for the rest of the book of Hebrews. This is it. Oh, and I can't wait to see what God does. Man, because he can really do some big stuff when he starts talking. You might be kicking and screaming, no thank you. Jesus will have his way. I think he wants to have his way in your heart. I think he wants to have his way in your life. I think he wants to have his way in this beautiful, wonderful church. He's got all that he needs with the people in the pews right here. You got Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus' power? Are you willing to follow Jesus, whatever that looks like? He was willing to die in order to say it. Now he's welcoming you to say, take up your cross. Deny yourself. Follow me. Who's that neighbor that doesn't know Jesus? Who's that coworker who's struggling? Which is your child who is getting stuck in the the ways of the world? How can you come together? How can we as a church bring this next generation and say, hey, we ain't giving up on you. Jesus has a hope for you. Jesus is doing something for you. So stick with Jesus. Jesus is that one. Seven chapters. I've been needing to hear it. You've been needing to hear it. Now we start to move into some action. Now we're not going to sit anymore. Now we're going to start moving. And the elders are going to help you to do that. And Pastor Tom is going to help you to do that. My advice is put your trust in Jesus. Everything else will one day pass away. No one's going to remember most of what you do in your life. But the stuff you do for Jesus will be remembered. That will be the legacy. I don't know many people who care about what my grades were anymore. In fact, I don't think any of you have ever asked. How rude of you. No one cares about what trophies I won and and, and what scholarships I got or, or any of that stuff. But people do care if I follow Jesus. The same thing is true of you. Whether you're young, whether you're old, this is what life is all about, church. I want us just to, to do this. And just see where God takes us. Only one life will soon be passed. 
Only what's done for Christ will last. I believe that with all of my heart. I pray you are believing that as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your challenging, powerful word. Jesus, I can get so stuck in my earthly habits and in my strengths and in my gifts and the things that I want to do. And yet you say, I will one day put a, put a new covenant, a new system in place. And the new wine isn't even going to be able to fit into the old wineskins, God. And so you burst open all of our expectations. And it's why we've needed to hear chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 that Jesus is better. He's better than anyone else who's ever come along. And now we hear he, he's, a, he's the, the perfect pastor. The pastor that Pastor Tom could never be. The pastor that Pastor Mike could never be. The pastor that Pastor Dan could never be. None of us could reach up to it. But Jesus, you're holding us. You're leading us. And so we got to decide, are we open to following you with whatever that looks like? God, would you shake us up this morning? And and would you begin to shake us up as we get into this book? Would you begin to put a fire into our bones that we would be passionate to follow you, whatever that looks like, even if it's more questions than answers, even if that's the more difficult route, even if it means more tears than otherwise? Jesus, I pray we would live for you and we would make sacrifices that are real with our wallets and with our time and with our relationships, and with our houses, and with with everything that we do, God, that we would just submit it to you. We would allow you to lead us. God, I believe Central Massachusetts will continue to grow in Christ if we as a church are willing to do that. And God, I know these people are already doing it, because I know the stories. But I pray you would increase it in our lives. God, we can't do this on our own. Can't buckle up our bootstraps. God, we need your Holy Spirit to come into us and just do something in us where we just have open hands and we say, all right, Jesus, now what? And then when you speak, we do it. God, I know that you've been doing it for many, many years throughout all these millennia and you're gonna do it with these people in Holden Chapel. Jesus, I thank you for your message. We thank you that your grace is enough, that your grace is sufficient and your power is made perfect in weakness. And I pray we begin to worship and live a life of worship that really is willing to follow you no matter the cost. God, you're better than anything else. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.